Well, I don't know if you've ever driven out west um, to maybe New Mexico or Colorado, and you know, you're in West Texas, and you've got a lot of flatland, you've got some tumbleweed blowing, you've got um, a lot of flatland, uh, and if you're driving, you can go pretty fast, so you kind of get out of the west area pretty fast, but, and get to the mountains, and so when you get to the mountains, I don't know if you ever have that experience when you start seeing them, uh, but for me, at times that I've driven out there, my family uh, got to do that twice last year, which was a blessing, and as we're driving out there, I just remember just when they come into view, to me, it's kind of breathtaking. It's, it's actually kind of relaxing. It's refreshing. There's something about it, and especially seeing the snow-capped mountains, and um, it's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful experience, and, and I just love when you head out west, and you start getting to um, the mountains, and this morning, as we look at this text, it's kind of like that. It's this breathtaking experience where you have these, these three disciples of Jesus Christ and, and, and Jesus as well, and um, they get up on this, this mountain. And this is a breathtaking view that we have of Scripture this morning, um, one like no other. And here we see Jesus as the glorious Son of God. And what's amazing about this text today is he's up on this mountain and he doesn't stay there. And I find that most significant today. Jesus is up on this mountain, but then he comes down to the foot of the mountain to help the needs of people. And he will ultimately do that through his death, his resurrection. The disciples aren't going to fully get this. We read that at the very end of what Jerry just read. This morning, though, I, I pray, as we look at this text, God would grow your understanding of, of who Jesus is, what he came to do, um, and that we also would realize that God has, has placed us down here. <laughs> He's placed us in a place where we are not just to live for the mountaintop experiences, though they are great. And we want to stay there at times, right? But that he has called us, just as he models to us, to come down to the low grounds, the bottom of the mountain, and to help with the needs of people. That people would understand who Jesus is. And so this morning, I'd like to look at this beautiful climatic event where Jesus and his identity is declared in what is known as the Transfiguration. Um, and so if we could this morning begin in verse 28, and we see Jesus some eight days after he has spoken with his disciples. It's amazing, Luke, he has some great um, exactly, I guess you could, could, could put it, uh, uh, specifics on some things. And here he does definitely on the days, eight days after he has said these things to him. And so here a week or so has, has passed, and he picks who? He picks Peter, John, and James, and they go up to the mountain to pray. And so um, he takes these three. Why these three guys, Peter, John, and James? So if you think about Jesus and the disciples, there's hundreds of disciples, okay? We even see on one occasion there's 72 that specifically are called out. 
Then we obviously have the 12 that he calls apostles, the sent out ones that he spends the majority of his, his time with, it seems. And then there are these three, okay? We'll, we can call them senior leaders, if you want, of the disciples. They will play huge roles, right, in the uh, beginning and the infancy of the church and church leadership. And so these are the three senior leaders of the uh, group and eventually play a key part in the church. And so Jesus is with these three. They go up to the mountain, but what is Jesus doing? He prays. He gets alone and he prays. And Luke again picks up on this in the life of Jesus. And so important as we begin this morning, the significance of us getting that time, that silence, that time of solitude um, to place ourselves with the Father, uh, time in prayer to be refreshed, to be encouraged, um, to pray before we do anything, time to break away from the busyness, from technology. And so Jesus models this for us. And he prays right before something of great significance, this huge historical event that happens right here before us in the scripture this morning. And so Jesus, again, dependent on the Father. And then look what happens in verse 29. And while he was praying, while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming, flashing like lightning. And so what do we see here? Jesus is in prayer. And then he physically, his appearance changes. It changes. I think implied here, right, is, is something that prayer does, right? Prayer changes us. When we pray, prayer changes us. A lot of times we think when we go to prayer that we're, we're just asking God to change this specific thing for this specific person, this specific need. But what prayer ultimately does is it changes you and I. And so here in this moment, as Jesus is praying, we see his appearance change. This is unbelievable. This is amazing of what's happening here. So here in this moment, it says his appearance became, uh, his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. And so what we see here is the glory of Jesus Christ. Literally, our eternal creator God is made manifest, is seen here right before the three disciples. He is in this glorified state. And so what do we see in this moment? It is Jesus, God in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man. What's interesting is before this moment, and even when he comes down the mountain, what we have is we have this manifestation of the glory of God, of who Jesus fully is. It is veiled, right? It is, it is veiled. And, and where do we see that at? You remember when Paul is talking about his incarnation where uh, Jesus fully God, comes down and becomes and takes on the appearance of a man, even of a servant. And it tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that he empties himself, right? And so what that means is when he comes in the flesh, uh, it doesn't mean he's any less God. He is not like, um, you know, 50% God at this time. No, he is fully, 100% God, 100% man. But, but the glory that he, he, he bears is veiled. It's veiled. But here up on the mountaintop, in this moment, it is not. It is fully seen. The glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of God. So this is big. Now, I want to take you to a few scriptures 
uh, to show you this. In John 17, verse 5, you remember Jesus, he's praying to the Father. He's praying on behalf of the disciples. And one of the things he prays also as well is about his mission and where his mission will lead for himself. And Jesus says to the Father, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And so what we're seeing up on this mountain at this time is an expression of that, an experience of that same glory that Jesus Christ had before he took on flesh. In fact, that's who Jesus is. He's eternal. He's always been. He didn't come into beginning when he took on flesh. He's always been. He has no beginning. He has no end. And so, in fact, we read in places like Genesis 1, Jesus is present, right? Very much involved in creation. In fact, we were told by Paul in Colossians 1.16 that by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for his glory, for Jesus himself. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, you remember we have this beautiful conversation between the Godhead, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God said, they are talking, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. And so Jesus, we see him in the Old Testament. We see him before he takes on flesh. He is involved in creation. He is the creator. We see him in other places as well. And we see expressions of his glory <coughs> as well. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we read this earlier this morning. The prophet Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. And then at the end of Isaiah 6, 5, it says, My eyes, Isaiah says, have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then in John chapter 12, verse 41, listen to what John tells us about Isaiah's experience. He says that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, his glory, and he spoke of him. And so what do we see here in Isaiah? What do we see in the Old Testament? We see the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of the eternal Son of God. And then we know in John chapter 1, Verse 14, and also in verse 18, it tells us that the Word, the eternal Word of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. Who is that? That is Jesus. And so Jesus came in the flesh to explain who God is. I'll take that, yeah. Awesome. Thanks, man. He came to explain who God is. So what we have seen is when Jesus comes in the flesh, his, his glory is veiled. But up on top of this mountain, we see the expression of it. We see him in his fullness, in the, in the full glory of even what he was before, before he came in the flesh. So let me drink this real quick. You ever get just like this itch and it just won't go away? All right, thanks, Izzy. Thanks for coming to the rescue, man. <laughs> that was great. So we see this, and so what's going to happen later as well, this also makes us look forward, 
uh, is Jesus, obviously he'll, he'll go to the cross, he'll die, he'll raise again on the third day, he'll ascend to heaven after being in this glorified state here on the earth, 40 days he'll be with the disciples, and then he'll go up to heaven where he is now sitting at the right hand of God, and then he will come again. And the Bible tells us this, when he comes again, he ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. How does he come, and how will he be found? In Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, it says the city, all right, this new heaven, new earth, has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Think about this morning. When you drove in this morning, the sun was shining bright, right? So bright that my son Pierce was like, man, I like the light, but good night. Could, could the sun, could we do away with the sun for a little bit? It's, it's really shining bright this morning. I said, can't do that. Can't do that. But there's going to be no sun or moon. We have no need for it. Why? For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb. It's Jesus. That's the glory of Jesus Christ. And so here on this mountaintop, for this moment, the glory of God is revealed and seen in Jesus Christ. He's the glorious son of God. So can you imagine this? Unbelievable. Talk about breathtaking. Unbelievable. And then look what happens next. Verse 30 and 31. Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory and splendor, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So here is Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Now, we've got to be careful with this text, right? Because we can't just brush over this like this is, oh, hey, this is, this is just an average day, right? No, this is huge. What's happening on this mountain? Jesus in in all glory, reflecting. And here, appearing in that glory, is Moses and Elijah. And they're talking about the work of God as Jesus is going to depart. He's going to go to Jerusalem. So what's that a reference to? And what are they talking about? Death, his resurrection, eventually even his ascension. And so so we see all this uh, implied here with their conversation. And so the disciples are seeing this. Um, This is unbelievable. And what's the significance of these two gentlemen being there? Moses and Elijah. Why are they there? Think about Moses. Lived some 1,400 years before Jesus. He was what you would call the original redeemer of God's people. Led them uh, across the Red Sea uh, as God split the sea. Uh, We remember that. Uh, He established the worship of God in Israel by giving what? The law. Uh, Remember that back in Exodus 19 and 20. Uh, He also had a mountaintop experience very similar to this out in Mount Sinai where God met him there, gave him the law that he was to give to the Israelites. We see the renewal of that in Exodus 34 up on the mountain as well. Remember he comes down from the mountain. His face is shining with the glory of God so much so that it has to be veiled. And so we see that with Moses, and then eventually Moses will die, and he will be buried. And then we see Elijah, this one 900 years prior to Jesus Christ. He represents the prophets as God through him predicted that uh, he would turn the hearts of the people back to him in the future that he would do that through one who was to come. And Elijah preserved the worship of God in Israel when the nation was the closest to abandoning it completely. But what's interesting about Elijah 
that he did not die. He did not die. We're told in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, that he is taken into the presence of God in a chariot of fire, and he went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Can you imagine 2 Kings is Elijah is hanging out with Elisha, and they're just hanging out, and all of a sudden, chariot of fire, whirlwind, gone. And I'm like Elijah, and I'm like, oh, wow. So we're going to go out like that. That's cool. That's cool. Amazing. And that's how Elijah goes. And so when you think about these two gentlemen, what they represent, Moses represents the law, he represents the Passover lamb, which all pointed to who? Jesus, right? And then you have Elijah. Who did Elijah represent? The prophets, which all pointed to who? Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And as Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, which is represented there up on the mountaintop, in this moment. And he also, Jesus, is the Passover lamb who will go to Jerusalem as they're talking about that and die. And his death will accomplish redemption on a cosmic scale, right? Not just for Israel and the great exodus out of Egypt. No, redemption on a cosmic scale for all nations and all people. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine watching this scene? Don't you wish they had iPhones, right? that that could have been passed down as well. Can we get some audio-visual here, right? And that's what God is doing here for them, displaying the glory of God, displaying the fulfillment of God's plan through the ages and saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And then look at verse 32 and 33. Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. Wow. But when they were fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as they were leaving him, all right, Moses and Elijah, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying, right? I love how Luke kind of adds that, right? He wasn't really realizing what he was talking about, okay? He puts it in a very nice way. (laughs) Before we hammer Peter John and James for falling asleep. We have to remember these guys walk a lot, right? I imagine they were tired. Think about ministry, the demands of ministry, and they were fully involved in that. They were tired, right? And so don't hammer them too much of think, why do they fall asleep, right? What's up with that? Um, but instead, focus on when they're fully awake, right? Fully they're awake. They see Jesus in all his glory, the two men, Moses and Elijah, they were leaving. And so Peter wants to prolong the moment. And he wants to set up camp, right? What's he thinking? What's he thinking of this moment? It, it seems that he has in mind possibly a celebration called the Feast of Tabernacles. It could be. Why would he want to set up these tents, these tabernacles? It seems to... Um, to worship, to worship. You think of the Feast of Tabernacles, that's what it was about. It was a time to worship God. It was to worship the King, uh, uh, which is God, the Lord. And so maybe he's thinking that this is the beginning of the earthly kingdom, which very well could be. It seems that he might be putting Jesus, Moses, and Elijah maybe on the same level as well. Give them their own little tabernacle, right? Could be that as well. 
Could be he's just wanting to set up some, a, a life group there on top of the mountain and let's just have some community and let's hang out together, right? Just the six of us up here. I mean, that'd be a cool life group. Wouldn't you want your life group to have on your roster Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? <laughs> You'd be like, man, I got the best life group in the church. What, what's up with you? We'll go play you guys in kickball this week. Just watch out, you know? I mean, just, it'd be fun. It'd be great to have those guys. And so I don't know what Peter is necessarily thinking, but it seems here it's not appropriate response in the moment. Because it says not realizing what he was saying. Peter wants to stay in this mountaintop experience. How many of us have ever been there? Well, we've had those mountaintop experiences. We don't want to leave. We don't want to leave. I, I've been there. I've been there. I mean, I remember as a young kid, especially when I was a high schooler, when we would go to youth camp during the summer, it was a mountaintop experience every year. And I remember Friday, I didn't want to come home. I never wanted to come home. I would cry about coming home, right? I liked home, right? But I liked camp better. It was a mountaintop experience, and I never wanted to leave. I think Peter has a little bit of that here. He doesn't want to leave this experience. But I think one thing we learn here is life is not just about mountaintop experiences. It's not just about staying up on the mountain. It's not. But look what happens next in verse 34. While he was saying this, so while Peter is saying this, he's going to get interrupted by something, all right? A cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. A very significant verse. And they kept silent, the disciples did, and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. So this cloud comes Peter's talking, the cloud comes, it's almost as though God is saying, I'm going to interject something here, right? And he makes a big statement. The cloud, no doubt, seems to represent what we would call the Shekinah glory of God, this visible vehicle for God's localized presence. We saw it during the the wandering in the wilderness with the Israelites back in Exodus. Um, It seems that's what it is most definitely here. Um, We also know that we're told in Scripture, like places like Isaiah and Daniel, that this cloud, the, the glory, the presence of God will accompany the Son of Man, Jesus, when he comes again. So it seems also another indication of the coming again of Jesus is also in view as well, possibly in this case. But whatever the case is, this cloud is formed, the glory of God, the presence of God is there. The Father speaks from heaven again. And I say again because do you remember back in Luke uh, 3, verse 22, at Jesus' baptism, the Father speaks. And he says very similar words, this is my son. And here he says, my chosen one, listen to him. Isaiah 42, 1, very similar language the prophet does as he speaks of God's word, and it's God's word about the Messiah. And so here, the Father is declaring, this is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the chosen one. He is my Messiah, the one who came to save. And so we see the Father speaking about Jesus at his baptism, is prepared for ministry, and we see him here preparing for his suffering that's going to come in Jerusalem. But I want you to hear this. There is no higher, there is no greater authority 
than the Father. And there is no greater testimony than his. And so what he says here is big. This is the ultimate authoritative voice in all the universe. And what he declares about Jesus is the ultimate truth. He declares that he is the Son of God who came in the flesh. He is the Messiah. Who he has chosen to come to purchase salvation with his very life and through his blood he will redeem those who bend their lives to him in faith. And what I love about this, he makes this statement and then it says Jesus was found alone. What's the point? Think about all that's been said about Jesus at this time in this place. Herod, the crowds. Jesus kept asking, who do people say that I am? And they would say, well, some believe that you're Elijah, who has risen again. Some believe that you're John the Baptist. Some believe that you're the prophets of old. And so the father right here with his statement that this is my son, my chosen one, and then He's the only one left there. <laughs> the father is making a point and saying, this is him, nobody else. Don't worship Moses, don't worship Elijah, don't look for Elijah to turn again. This is the one. They all pointed to him. They were all expecting him, looking forward to him. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the one. Don't look for anybody else. He is it. He's making a big statement. And then he says, listen to him. I don't know if there's three bigger words this morning. Listen to him. The Father from heaven says to the ones on the mountain and to us, he's declaring it even broader and bigger than just on the mountain. He's saying, world, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No man comes to the Father except through him, John 14, 6. Listen to Jesus. Who are you listening to this morning? Who are you listening to? Who's getting your ear? What are you bending your ear to? Listen to Jesus. Man, I don't know if there's any greater words. <laughs> Listen to him. And look what happens next. So the father makes this bold, huge, authoritative statement. The disciples, they hear the voice. They see Jesus is alone. They don't say anything. And they report, will report this to no one. I think there's a lot of reasons why they do this. Ultimately, I think God has a plan. And I think that's part of the reason they're quiet is I think God uh, has something to do with them not talking about all this for different reasons. That's a side note. Um, to be talked about maybe over coffee or something, but I want us to see, look at verse 37. Look what happens here. On the next day when they came down from the mountain, so they come down, right? They come down from the mountain. A large crowd met Jesus, and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. A spirit has, seizes him. He suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him, wow, as it leaves him. But here's what I want you to find. Life is not about mountaintop experiences only. 
It's not about staying on the mountain. It's about day-to-day needs of others. It's about ministry. And that's what Jesus came to do. God declares, this is my son. He's the Messiah. Listen to him. And then I love it. Straight back down the mountain, right? What's the point? Jesus didn't come to say, hey, I'm up here on this mountain. Come and make all your attempts to try to get up to me. Climb that ladder, right? Do all your, your good deeds and your, do all your good works to, to get to where I am. Jesus didn't come like that. All the other religions in the world have come like that. They are like that. All the other religious leaders in the world is come and do these things, do these things, do these things. Earn your way, earn your way, right? Come up to the mountain. See if you can get up here. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus comes down. He came down from glory, takes on flesh, becomes a man, becomes like us, bears our sin on the cross, bears the weight of the world, agony, suffering, bears it all for you and I. He came down to the mountain to do what? To meet the needs of people. He came down to real life. He came down to reality for this. This is what he came down for, this, us. He came down for the worst of situations. He came down for a guy who is being influenced by demons. And we see with these epileptic-like seizures that was a result. Horrible situation. Jesus came down for the needs of mankind. And that's what he came for. Romans, 8, 6, or Romans 5, 6 says, while we were helpless, Jesus came. Romans 5, 8, while we were sinners, Jesus came and he died for us. So he didn't say, hey man, get all cleaned up, get perfect, get all your things in order and try to see if you can earn your way to heaven. He did not come saying that. He came and said, no, you know what? This world's a mess, broken, depressed, struggling, sinful, helpless. And he came down. And he came down to join it. And he came down to join it, to change it. And that's what he's going to do here. Verse 40 and 43, I begged your disciples to cast it out. They could not. This is what the Father says. Jesus said, you unbelieving, perverted generation, how long shall I put up with you and be with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still approaching the demon, slammed him to the ground, threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and they were all amazed at the greatness, the majesty of God. So the disciples could not help. The man and the crowd, he rebukes. Why? Because of their lack of faith. But Jesus, in spite of that, heals this boy. And the demon is gone. And the crowd is amazed, recognizing that this was no doubt the power that God at work to heal this little boy, just like that. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to heal. He came to heal us. And then lastly, 43 and 45, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, the Messiah, that's what that term means. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. 
But they didn't understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Jesus takes this opportunity after this healing and after the popularity, the excitement, the approval of the crowd to communicate to his disciple that this approval will not continue. It will not continue. For he will be betrayed, he will be delivered into the hands of men. Ultimately, God the Father, who spoke from heaven, who said, this is my son, my chosen one, he will deliver Jesus. He will deliver the Son of Man willingly into the hands of men for the purpose of him being killed by them. And that will happen because God's plan is that Jesus would be the substitute, that he would be the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, that would purchase for mankind salvation as the suffering Messiah. The disciples did not get this. They didn't understand it. They did not fully get it at this time. And so this morning, do you get it? Do you understand it? This is God's plan. That Jesus, who has always been, he is God, came down from the mountain and he took on flesh to meet our needs. He is our great rescuer. He is the one who came to redeem us, to save us. Do you know that this morning? Do you know him this morning? The Bible calls for us that when we look at Jesus and who he is, that we would trust him. He rebuked the crowd for not trusting him. He calls us to trust him, to believe in him. And so the Bible says, if you will believe that Jesus is Lord, that he rose again from the grave on the third day, if you believe that he is God, that he is the Savior, that he's the Messiah, the Bible says you will be saved, that your sins will be forgiven forever. And that one day you will be with him. And that you will experience that you will see him in all his glory just like Peter, James, and John did. You will see him. So what about us? Do we believe that? And I would also say this, just like the disciples, we live in a world who does not understand, comprehend the things of God more and more and more and more and more. And so we have to look at this text and say, you know what? My job, my responsibility as a disciple, right? Is that, man, I get to have this mountaintop experience this morning. I call this this. We get to come to the mountain here on Sunday morning. But man, I got to come down from that mountain and leave these doors because there is ministry and there is needs all over the place. And as Jesus' followers, his disciple, I'm called to meet those needs. That's what he's called me to do. And that's what he's called the church to do. And I pray that you see that this morning, that you see that, and that we would be bearers of the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah who came to save man, to give us life and hope. Let's pray.